I want to ask you to open a Bible with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, it's found on page 841 of the Pew Bible in front of you. That's where we're going to be spending some time over the next couple minutes. Dakota Meyer had returned home to Greensburg, Kentucky to be the grandmaster at the town's Cow Days Festival. Just two days earlier, he, as a United States Marine, was at the White House receiving the Congressional Medal of Honor from then-President Barack Obama. Because on September 8th, 2009, Corporal Meyer, along with 13 U.S. military trainers and a column of Afghan soldiers and border police officers, set out for a routine meeting with some elders of a village in Ganjal, which is in a valley on the border of Pakistan and Afghanistan. And while they were there, nearly 50 insurgents ambushed the joint force. And as the casualties mounted, Meyer and Staff Sergeant Juan Rodriguez Chavez disobeyed orders to stay put. And instead, they ended up rescuing 36 U.S. and Afghan troops. I didn't think I was going to die, Meyer told the crowd at the Cow Days Festival. I knew I was going to die. There was so much frenzy, so much enemy fire whizzing past my head that it sounded like radio static. Festival organizers estimated that about 20,000 people came out to hear him speak that day. And of that 20,000, the streets of Greensburg, which is a city of about or a town of about 2,400, were lined 10 deep as people waited just to get a glimpse of the hometown hero. Friends, family members, neighbors, local and state officials all waved U.S. flags as he passed by in his dress blues, his Medal of Honor shining brightly in the September sun a true hometown hero. And everyone celebrated his achievement. Hometown heroes are seen in all kinds of places, in all kinds of ways throughout history. War heroes, professional athletes, famous actors, influential businessmen or women, they all came from somewhere. And even though you might not know where they came from, the people from their hometown do, and they're happy to tell you about it. Even politicians, who aren't all that popular sometimes, they came from somewhere and are often welcomed with a hero's welcome back home. You see, there's just something about hometown heroes. The whole community gets behind a person and their accomplishment and to celebrate them. But really what the whole community is celebrating when they recognize a hometown hero is not just the person. They're celebrating the place. They're celebrating the community. And the whole community is lifted up. Jesus had been preaching about the coming of the kingdom of God. He had been crossing back and forth across the sea and hitting different towns and villages where he would preach and heal people and cast out demons. His reputation was growing because he was doing things that people had never seen before and he was saying things that they had never heard before. And as a result came a level of fame with him. 
And you would think that with that growing reputation and level of fame, that when he returned back to his hometown, that there would be a parade waiting for him. Or a hero's welcome. Or at least some kind of dinner or recognition or honor. You would think that he would be a hometown hero. But that wasn't the case. The reaction of the people in his hometown was quite different. Let's read about it together in Mark 6. Follow with me as I read, starting at verse 1. It says this. He went away from there, Jesus, and he came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not these his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Jesus decided to go back home. He had a mixed relationship with the place and with the people. You might expect that he would have received a hero's welcome, a true hometown hero, but what happened couldn't be any further from that. And it's really interesting when you take a big step back and you look at the Gospel of Mark, it seems that everywhere Jesus goes, there's a large crowd waiting for him. Everywhere except his hometown. Mark 4, he's teaching by the seaside, and there's a very large crowd that's gathered, pressing on the beach, and so he has to get into a boat and push offshore and teach them from the boat because the whole crowd was beside the sea. And in the first part of Mark 5, he delivers a demon-possessed man, and a massive crowd gathers around him. And then in the second part of Mark 5, he goes to a different side of the lake, and there's a crowd waiting for him. They preceded him. They heard he was coming, and so they all gathered so that when he got off the boat, people were there. And they had to press through the crowd with Jairus to get to his child. Everywhere Jesus goes, a massive crowd is gathering. 
except when he went home. It seems that Jesus strolled into the village with his disciples. There's no big scene, no dinner, no hometown heroes welcome. And he waited until the Sabbath to teach them. And as the people gathered in the local synagogue, that's exactly what he did. Many who heard his teaching were astonished, it says. And the first two questions reflect that sentiment. But their overall response is quite fascinating. There's five questions that they ask, five points of conversation that are going on throughout the synagogue on that day. And they range from amazement all the way down to sharp unbelief. First two questions reflect some kind of astonishment. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? I mean, they knew that Jesus wasn't a trained rabbi, and yet he spoke more eloquently than the rabbis. And it wasn't just his eloquence. Jesus was able to explain the law and the prophets of the Old Testament and apply it in a way that was imminently helpful. And if they believed in him, it would also be life-giving to them. And so these first two questions seem to me to be questions of curiosity, of amazement, of wonder. But then something happened. The questions began to shift. The third question could be positive or it could be cynical in its expression. They asked, how are such mighty works done by his hands? On the one hand, you could see why any person would ask that question. Jesus could do things that they'd never seen before, and they were absolutely amazed by it. On the other hand, you might remember just a few chapters back in chapter 3, the Pharisees accused Jesus of doing miracles by the power of demons. And so the question might be a genuine curiosity or it might be a cynical reminder of the accusation that was standing out against him in that very community. Regardless if it's positive or cynical, what comes next is most certainly poor form. Is not this the carpenter the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? He's just a carpenter. There's nothing special about this guy. And he's the son of Mary. That's a low blow. Because in the ancient world, Sons were always identified by their fathers, even if their fathers had passed away. So to ask cynically, isn't this the son of Mary, is essentially calling Jesus' mother a slut and him an illegitimate child. Disdain, accusation, doubt. Verse 3 tells us, they took offense at him. The Son of God was right in front of them, but they perceived him to be normal. 
Joshua Bell emerged from the metro and he positioned himself against a wall beside a trash basket. By most measures, he was nondescript, a youngish white man in jeans and a long sleeve t-shirt and a Washington Nationals baseball cap. And from a small case, he removed his violin and he began to play. Opening the case in front of his seat, he threw a couple dollars in and a handful of coins as seed money for what would happen over the next 45 minutes. And for those next 45 minutes, the DC Metro, on January 12th, 2007, Joshua Bell played Mozart and Schubert. And over a thousand people streamed past him, hardly taking notice. If they had paid attention, they may have recognized him as the world-renowned violinist that he is. They also might have recognized the violin that he was playing. It was a $3 million Stradivarius that was echoing through the chamber on that particular day. It was all part of a project arranged by the Washington Post, a project about context and perception and priorities, as well as an unblinking assessment of public taste. In that banal setting, at just an inconvenient time in the day, would true beauty transcend? Just three days earlier, Joshua Bell had sold out the Boston Symphony Hall. The ordinary seats were $100 a piece. He regularly made $1,000 a minute playing his violin. Kids, keep practicing. In the subway, one person recognized who he was, just one. And over his 45 minutes, he garnered about $32 from 27 people who stopped long enough to give a a donation. Greatness was right in front of them. And they thought he was normal. Beauty in the synagogue rang out for all to hear because they didn't recognize the source and they didn't appreciate its sound. Jesus, the very eternal son of God, full of grace and truth, the true light which gives light to everyone was in the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and yet they did not know him. They thought he was normal. He spoke truth and life to them and they couldn't hear it because they didn't recognize who he was. Back in chapter three, Jesus had received a humiliating blow as his own mother and brothers tried to stop his ministry because they thought he was crazy. Apparently that mindset had started to spread throughout the community. Everywhere else people were clamoring for him, but not at home. And so Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled. Jesus, the son of God, marveled because of their unbelief. And he went out among the villages teaching. The problem wasn't, at its core, familiarity. This feels like that old adage, familiarity breeds contempt. 
The problem at its core is unbelief. And our English rendering is not the most helpful here. It's not that Jesus could not do mighty works there. He is all-powerful. Omnipotence is omnipotence. He has done mightier works in tougher situations than this. It's that he would not do any miracles there. He was not compelled to help them to see their distaste and disdain was so palpable that he would simply leave. I've been in situations like that. Perhaps you have too. Situations or conversations. I can remember uh, in one of the early churches in which I served, when you stood up to preach the word of God, you could feel the chill in the air. Suspicions about its certainty. Doubt about the significance of God's word. Rejection of its contemporary relevance. Rejection of the categories of sin that the Bible presents. It's like a fog that shrouds over a bunch of people. And all but a very few lack spiritual power because of their unbelief. And all the while, those suspicions, doubts, and rejections were peppered with questions, just like our passage today. And you know, there's a difference between general questions that seek understanding and cynical accusations that are posed as questions. You know the difference. You can almost hear it in the tone sometimes. The first example in the Bible is seen right at the very beginning. Satan approaches Eve in the Garden of Eden and says, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This was not a question of sincerity. This was an accusation disguised as a question. You know the difference when you hear it. You know the difference when somebody is saying it to you. But do you know the difference when you are the one asking the question? That's the warning. Jesus warns his hearers in just a few chapters earlier to be careful how you hear. He says to them in chapter 4, verse 24, pay attention to what you hear with the measure you use. It will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. There is a way to hear that is disposed toward belief, and there is a way to hear or listen that is marked by unbelief. And that raises a really crucial question for you and for me. Does that mean that our belief should simply be blind? Does that mean that we shouldn't ask detailed questions and explore deeper meaning? And the answer to that is, of course, no. Belief, true belief, is not engagement that lacks thought. Nor is belief blind, acceptance without discernment. There are a lot of people who claim to speak for God. And if you just blindly accept everything that they say, that could lead you to a very unhealthy and bad place. But a disposition of unbelief on the other side is one that says, no matter what I've seen, no matter what I've heard, I will 
not follow. I will not believe. That's what we see right here. I've seen people like this, men and women alike, who have a loved one who put their faith in Christ, had had seen the God of the universe and his mighty work in their lives. Perhaps they'd been given victory over addiction. Perhaps they had a marriage that was saved. Perhaps they received inexplicable joy because of their following of Jesus. The testimonies of people, like your testimonies you're going to hear today in the baptismal later in this service. And yet there are loved ones who somehow simply ignore everything that they've seen and heard and explain it away. Or write them off as those weak ones who depend upon God or those who are on the elevator that just doesn't quite make it all the way to the top floor. Unbelief, a disposition of unbelief, a closed mind to God and to the things of Christ. And so there's a lot of potential application points there. The first one is maybe just a simple question of, We live in a time right now where you can be tempted to view Jesus as ordinary. Do you view him as ordinary? Or do you view him as the divine savior and king? Don't let familiarity breed contempt. Do you come to his word with a disposition that says, I want to know from God who he is and how I can serve him, or a disposition of unbelief, questioning cynically every single thing, which is really a form of accusation. There's a warning for us here against our own belief or unbelief. And of course, there's an application when we minister to those who will believe and some who will not believe. And that's where Jesus goes next. In verse 7, he turns his attention on training his disciples to be ministers of the gospel in an unbelieving world. He takes what he had just experienced in the synagogue and says, now you're going to experience something similar, except you're going to experience something even better. And he says in verse 7, he called the 12 and he began to send them out two by two and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Jesus puts together a bunch of dynamic duos, sends them out. Ministry is hard, and it's hard in a place where there's opposition. It makes sense that he would send them together for support and encouragement. It also makes sense that he would give them authority over unclean spirits because what was their message? Their message was repent Turn away from your sins because the kingdom of God is at hand. The same message of Jesus himself. And who are the biggest enemies of the kingdom of God? Satan and his demons. And so the disciples are winning souls for the king and they're ridding the kingdom by casting out the enemies of the king. And Jesus gives them instruction. It's very quick instruction about how how they're able to conduct themselves while ministering. And you might break it down into three categories. Give some instruction about their provisions, about their accommodation, and about their disposition. And with regard to their provisions, they're told not to take the most basic supplies. No food, no change of clothing, no money, no cell phone charger. 
just the very basic things that they had. One tunic, their sandals, and their walking staff. And that's it. Now, in the ancient world, that might not have been the same imposition on the people that they were ministering to as it would be today. They exercised a much higher level of hospitality than most of us do. But for the disciples, it helped them with a very important lesson. And the lesson was this. If they didn't have food and they didn't have shelter and they didn't have the ability to buy or rent shelter, who did they have to depend on? They had to depend on God. Dependence was the lesson. Gospel work is dependence on God. And their dependence for the physical things pointed them to the reality that they needed to depend upon God for the spiritual things as well. How were they going to overcome the hardened unbelief of the people around them? Dependence on God. God grants repentance and belief. They needed to depend on him. God overcomes unbelief through those who are dependent on him. With regard to accommodation, Jesus taught them to stay in the same house in the village the whole time they were there. They weren't to ladder jump and look for more comfortable accommodation as they were there. They were to honor the host that had them and not worry about their comfort. Gospel work is uncomfortable, and Christianity is in many times as well, and they would experience that. With regard to their disposition, Jesus taught them, if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Jesus expects that some places that they go will be marked by hostile unbelief, just like their hometown, that they won't even let them in or they won't even listen to what they have to say. And in the ancient world, it was customary for devout Jews who had traveled to foreign pagan lands to shake off their clothing and their sandals and the dust would fall as a symbol of their disassociation from the pollution of those lands and their pagan beliefs. So Jesus' instructions to his disciples is an outward act. It's a physical sign, something that a prophet would do that recognizes for everybody to see that that village is pagan. They will not believe. Now to call a Jewish village pagan, that was a symbol indeed. And of course, it wasn't meant to be mean-spirited. It was meant with the hopes that some would see it, they would receive the warning, they would repent and believe the gospel and become part of the kingdom of God that was growing in that region. And the result is, in verses 12 and 13, they did what they were told. They went out and they preached that people should repent. And they cast out demons and healed many who were sick. 
And so the question is, how does the account of the synagogue and this unbelief relate to the account of the 12 going out and being empowered for ministry? Unbelief in one is the primary point and dependence in the other is the primary point. How do they relate? Well, you might say it this way. God overcomes unbelief through dependent ones on him. God overcomes the unbelief of the world and he does it through those who are dependent on him. And so there's a warning and an encouragement. The warning is watch out lest you be one who rejects Jesus in unbelief. Don't treat him as normal. He is indeed the mighty king who has come to save. And some of you might feel worried because you're doing evangelism training this fall and you know that there's going to be some hostile reactions. How will you succeed? You must depend upon God. Who cracks the hardness of heart? Who takes the blinders off of people's eyes? Who removes the plugs from their ears? It's not me and it's not you. Only God can do that. God overcomes unbelief through those who are dependent on him. Louis Palau is an evangelist who has shared the gospel with tens of thousands of people throughout most of his life in South America. And very early on, he learned the importance of this lesson. He writes that during my first semester at Multnomah School of the Bible, the founder of Torchbearers, Major Ian Thomas, spoke at our chapel service. And he talked about how it took Moses 40 years in the wilderness to learn that he was nothing. And then one day, Moses was confronted with a burning bush, likely a dry bunch of ugly sticks. And yet, Moses had to take his sandals off in front of this dry bunch of ugly sticks. Why? Because God was in the bush. Major Thomas says, God was telling Moses, I don't need a pretty bush or an educated bush or an eloquent bush. An old bush will do as long as I'm in the bush. If I'm going to use you, it won't be you doing something for me, but me doing something through you. Louis writes, that was the kind of bush that I was, a useless bunch of dried up sticks. I could do nothing for God. All of my reading and studying and modeling myself after others was worthless unless God was in the bush. Only he could make something happen. And when Thomas closed his message, I ran back to my room in tears, prayed in my native tongue of Spanish. My spiritual struggle was finally over. I would let God be God. And I would let Louis depend on him. God overcomes the unbelief in the world through those who are dependent on him. And so, friends, keep depending. Depend today. Depend upon him tomorrow. Depend upon him when you pray for a loved one who's lost. Depend upon him when you finally have a conversation. Depend upon him and see what he will do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are faithful 
that you are trustworthy, and that you are dependent, that we can depend upon you. Help us to learn this truth all the more, we ask. Guard our hearts and our minds against a cynical unbelief. For my friends who are here today that might be in that place right now, we pray that you would break down the walls in their heart and their mind and bring them to yourself. You're so kind to us. You're so good to us as we'll hear in just a moment of your great grace and mercy. And we long to experience it all the more in Jesus' name. Amen.